This episode of Astronomy Cast is sponsored by MagellanTV.com. Check out this new streaming service with your exclusive two-month free trial by clicking over to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast. Now, this isn't a normal part of the ad, but I have to say the landing page they made for AstronomyCast is amazing. Once you get to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast, you can dive into a collection of documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists. Designed by documentary filmmakers, this growing platform is adding new content weekly and is already home to a who's who of the best productions. From the overview effect to the NSF-funded Seeing the Beginning of Time, there's an amazing selection of space and astronomy-related content. Watch in 4K from Roku or on your computer, or stream on any iOS or Android device. I lost track of a bunch of hours on Saturday afternoon diving through history, and you can explore the solar system, travel to distant stars, and experience the universe like never before. Once again, you can check out this new streaming service with your exclusive two-month free trial by clicking over to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast. AstronomyCast, episode 532, Modern Astronomy of Australia. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser King, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. How is the mapping of Bennu? Oh, my gosh. Bennu, the asteroid, it's rocks, on rocks, on boulders, yeah. with more rocks. And and well, it's super tedious because, oh my God, there's so many rocks. Um, I've started doing spot checks of the data, just like randomly selecting images out of the database. And right now the data all looks good. I mean, there's like a couple of people that found interesting ways to not quite do it right, but it's like maybe one person yeah. per set of nine images. It's it's amazing. The science looks great, but we need more help. <laughs> right, because there's so many there's rocks. so many rocks. Yeah, it's we anticipated each image would take maybe three minutes to do, tops. And it's like taking anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour per image because there's so, so many rocks. Yeah. yeah. So everyone out there listening please go to bennu.cosmoquest.org and we've already had people turn up two really interesting scientific things that the science team is looking oh, at oh wow and that's really so, cool so yeah yeah so if you want yeah. and again right this is why cosmoquest exists is that yeah. we know that people listening to this podcast to astronomy cast and everything that we do you love science and some of you are scientists, but most of you have got some other career, but you've always wanted to be involved in science. And the whole purpose of CosmoQuest is to say, hey, you, you're a smart person. You can tell what a rock looks like, and the scientists need your help. And you will be able to, to contribute your time and energy, and you will be able to help make a scientific, help make scientific discoveries. And in this case, we are figuring out the landing spot and wh where we're going to pull a sample from an asteroid 
in the solar system. So please, yeah. like this is it. This is the chance. This is what it's all about. So come on, come down, come join us and, and categorize rocks. Cause that's, 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 by the way, that's what science is, 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 yeah, is drawing. Yeah, exactly. But, but so we have until July 10th to get 15 different people to mark each of 4,500 images. <laughs> each and of which July has 10th, dozens of rocks in it. No, no, no. Has hundreds, hundreds of rocks in it. And uh, after July 10th, the science team is going to pick using your data the best possible places to do follow-up imagery on and use for site selection for yeah. that landing. All right. So help us out. So Bennu.CosmoQuest.org. Perfect. See you there. Come join us. Last week, we talked about how well the indigenous Australians followed the night sky. Well, it turns out Australia is still an amazing place for astronomy. There are so many powerful observatories in Australia and even more in the works. And I'm going to make Pamela break one of her rules today which is that she doesn't talk about future future observatories and missions. I'm going to make her talk about one because it's so cool. And and this one I'm okay with because it's not going to blow up on launch. <laughs> right. Yes. So and it's, it's neither okay. will James Webb. James Webb is going to make it to space and it's going to deliver amazing science. Uh, I, I guarantee it. See, SKA has no chance of blowing that's up. true all right well let's get into it so uh give us a, a sort of a map of the of the modern uh astronomy that's happening in australia and why it's a, actually you know before we do that why is australia a good place for astronomy well first of all it's not very habitated and second of all it has like nice high plateaus nice large deserts so it's this perfect combination. In, in Canada, you don't have that many humans. You tend to congregate on your coasts and in random places along your southern border. But the vast middle of Canada is like grizzly bears <laughs> and mining settlements. Yeah, gri grizzly bears hate telescopes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you don't really build telescopes in Canada because you don't have the right conditions. You don't have dryness. You don't have, well, you have altitude. You just don't have dry altitude. No, we have you guys, wet. Yeah, 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 you do wet really well. Now, with Australia, you have the outback, which is arid. You have these amazing plateaus. You have mountain ranges. And on top of that, you don't have a large population. And this combination means Australia is dark, 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 dark. Yeah. And so where else would you put telescopes? It, it also just has this long history of, well, when they first settled there, they, they needed to, like, figure out when they were. And that is a really weird phrase, when they were, but... They didn't actually know precisely what time it was relative to, like, London until they had really accurate measurements of the stars. And that was necessary to keep their time coordinated. So they figured out where they were. They figured out when they were. And Sydney Observatory was one of those places that was relied on for mapping the Southern Hemisphere and for determining their place in well, space and time. And and again, I, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again. Having personal experience with Australia and with the dark skies of Canada, 
both I can get away from the light pollution. And the this guy's in Australia. They just it does. There's no comparison. Like it's because it, here we get the Milky Way down at the horizon, and in Australia the Milky Way just goes right overhead, and it is just an absolutely stunning experience. So. Even if you do live in a place with, with dark skies and not very much light pollution, it's still just next level in Australia. And and so when you go there, and this is a everyone out there, I hope going to Australia is on your bucket list. I know not all of us. In fact, most of us will never get the chance to go there. But if you do, uh, good chances you're going to fly into Sydney. And Sydney is home of Sydney Observatory. It's this amazing historic facility. It's up in a park looking out over the harbor. Go visit Sydney Observatory and see the, the careful tools they had for astronomers to lay back and look up and use setting circles to map out the sky. Uh, their transit telescope really helped them figure out just what all is up there from this completely new perspective that so many of them gained when they moved willingly or unwillingly to this new continent. You have a really happy bird near you. I, yeah, I do. I do. There's going to be a happy bird in this episode. Yeah. Sorry about that, everyone. I can hear that. It's spring. And I'm sure, do you know what kind of bird that is? I'm sure someone listening will tell us what it is, but I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. It's not a cardinal and it's not a chickadee. I know that. All right. Um, okay. So, but I mean, many cities have one of those observatories in them. I mean, we have one in Vancouver and we have, there's one near in Victoria. I'm sure. And, and they're like the first observatory that gets set up in, in any city so that the the local astronomers can can get together and and uh observe the night sky you know the 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 gentleman astronomers back in the 1800s or whatever right um but more serious observatories have gotten set up in australia not yes, that and... not that the sydney observatory isn't a serious observatory but there's some big ones that get away from that light pollution and take advantage it, this, of those dry this skies. is true and and mount stromlo observatory was built in the 1920s, the same time that so many of the great observatories here in the United States and up in Canada started to be built. There was really a flourishing of larger telescopes during this era. And and Mount Stromlo was where they built some of their first big observatories. And it has gone on since then to do modern astronomy. It was part of the MACHO project, which was a project to look out at the Magellanic clouds night after night after night and look for foreground objects in our own Milky Way galaxy passing in front of those background stars in the Magellanic clouds and through gravity magnifying the light, gravitationally microlensing the light of those background stars. And the Macho Project was part of how we realized, yeah, dark matter is really small stuff and not just a whole bunch of dark stars in our own galaxy. And, and so we had the Macho Project, we had Brian Schmidt organized the HiZ supernova search team there. And it was where the Anglo-Australian Observatory, a 3.9 meter telescope was built. Um, unfortunately, Mount Stromlo, uh, outside of the city of Canberra, um, was, was 
mostly destroyed in 2003 by brush fires. Yeah. And this this is a problem that has plagued many of the observatories here in the United States and in Australia as well. And one of the things that is much more terrible in Australia is eucalyptus trees are essentially uh, giant trees of explosive oil waiting right. to well, explode. Yeah, and, I, um, I, so I remember that we. I mean, yeah. I had been doing Universe Today for about three years when that fire happened, and so I was covering it. We, I was covering that the fires were approaching, and then it really seemed like Mount Stromlo was going to get hit, and then it did, and and then you know, beautiful. I think they had like a like a 50 inch telescope that got completely destroyed. Uh, like the place was really, was really devastated. But it, I mean, is it the same situation as some of the, you know, Kitt Peak and these places in the US and these places in, in South America where you've got multiple observatories set up, multiple telescopes, not just one big telescope, right? No, no. So, so there was the 50 inch Melbourne Observatory, which, which you mentioned, which was the historic observatory that was destroyed. The director's house was destroyed. There's a whole variety of different instrumentation buildings. Luckily, they had just shipped a major instrument they had completed. So it was saved. Um, but there was telescope after telescope after telescope up there. And some of them survived, most of them didn't, and they've been working to bit by bit rebuild the facility. And today there are about 45 researchers up on the mountain continuing to work there, continuing to work on building massive instrumentation, doing survey work. Um, but it's, it's not the facility that it used to be. Fires have devastating effects. And I mean, we went through this again um, with the Siding Spring fires, but that didn't have as scary a, an outcome. No, so so Siding Springs Observatory is a different facility. It is uh, further north, still on the east coast of Australia. It's another optical facility. This is one that has dome after dome after dome. If, if you can imagine in your mind, like Kitt Peak National Observatory, uh, the the Mauna Kea facilities down in Hawaii. This is Siding Springs is another one of these facilities that just has domes yeah. as far as the eye can see. Um, the Eye Telescope Project has some of their their rentoscopes up at Siding Springs, and they again had a forest fire. And luckily, they didn't lose any of their major facilities, but there was damage to the observatory in the process. Yeah, I'm seeing there's over 60 telescopes on site. Yeah, so it's, it, it is telescopes yeah, as far as the yeah, eye can it see. Is just, they are just everywhere. And so this is the problem, right? I mean, for what Australia does have it with its dryness and its being away from the light pollution, it doesn't have much altitude. Like the, the highest, you could summit the highest mountain on Australia with not a lot of work. You know, it's a day hike. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Australia <clears throat> is really old, which means the mountains have all shrunk. Right, right. But it just to, means that they have don't have a lot of mountains. places, right? They don't have a lot of good right. places to put big telescopes at the top of to get above that stupid atmosphere. And, yeah. and they have them with Mauna Kea and they have it with all of the mountains in in Chile 
and with the stuff with the mountains that are in the in the US in the Southwest. But in Australia, they just don't have a lot of choices. And so this is like the best spot. And so all the telescopes are put there. Yeah. And and yeah, it that's really all you can say is they put all the telescopes there. Their their biggest one is of course the Anglo Australian telescope. Uh it's it's one of those classic multimeter telescopes. Uh, but they also have a, a bunch of small, cooler facilities. So they have one of the Las uh, Cumbres Observatory, part of the Global Telescope Network, a two-meter Rishi Kretian. Uh, they have uh, one of the telescopes that is busy doing microlensing studies for Korea. They have a star mapper telescope. They have a scope that's getting used by Michael Brown's team as part of the survey for Planet Nine. Um, if it is optical astronomy in Australia, there's a really good chance it's getting done at Siding Springs Observatory. So those are the the main visual astronomy optical. sites. Yeah, optical astronomy sites. But and, and I think, you know, when it comes to optical, like because you've got such a powerhouse in Chile you've got this perfect, really the, the perfect place for astronomy for the Southern Hemisphere. That takes a lot of the pressure off the need to build big telescopes in Australia. And so you just don't see them as, as in demand. It's nice to have some local science, nice to have a view to the sky when it's daytime in Chile, but still you're not going to be able to really compete with the skies that they've got in Chile, except for maybe going to Antarctica. <laughs> Right. And and this is where you see Siding Springs and Mount Stromlo are, are basically university observatories or places that have rentoscopes and small projects, um, but they're not the massive multinational collaborations for these optical telescopes. And I'm just going to keep saying yeah. that word o until we switch optical topics. Okay, you want to talk about radio telescopes, don't you? Yeah. All right. So, so Australia really has defined itself as one of the leaders in radio astronomy. And one of the cool things that a lot of people probably don't know is Wi-Fi, which is how I'm able to talk to you right now because I'm a bad human and I'm streaming over Wi-Fi. Um, the reason that we have Wi-Fi is because folks working on radio astronomy down in Australia figured out how to do the encoding and unencoding that is necessary to push signal out over Wi-Fi and have multiple computers all hooked up to the same system. That that was radio yeah. astronomy. Thank you, radio astronomy. <laughs> yeah, thank you, radio astronomers. And and so Australia has for what feels like since the earliest days in radio astronomy been one of the global leaders. Uh, they, they have, of course, the famous Parks Observatory. Uh, Parks is, it's in New South Wales. Again, it's on the east coast of Australia because really everything for the most part is on the east coast of Australia. And, and this is the facility where they caught the signal from the Apollo missions. Um, the Apollo 11 broadcast was brought to you by a radio telescope that is 
one of the coolest looking observatory buildings out there. Uh, a lot of the historic observatories have several buildings below the telescope that are workshops, dormitories. The astronomers literally lived and worked beneath their telescopes. And with the optical systems, they just have the top floor is, is where the behemoth telescope is with the, with the dome on top. Well, with parks, you have this three-story base with this massive 64-meter dish sprouting out of the top of this three-story brick building. And it is just architecturally, to me, the coolest telescope out there. And this is the point where we probably need to mention The Dish, which is a great movie about what it took to be able to get the, the parks observatory involved in the Apollo landings that essentially when Apollo was happening, that was one of the few observatories, radio dishes that was able to actually receive the signal that was being sent back by the Apollo astronauts. And, and so they were the ones responsible for bringing that signal back and then being able to retransmit it so that people could watch the moon landings live. And so it's just this, when you think about it, right, the Americans sent a spacecraft to the moon, they transmitted the signal, a gigantic radio telescope in Australia, picked up that signal and retransmitted it so that people around the world could watch the first human being set foot on the moon. And, and so this facility was built back in 1961, and it's, it's part of this amazing network of, of radio dishes that they bring together all across Australia. So there's also the Australian Telescope Compact Array, which is an array of six identical 22-meter telescopes that they use very much like we use the VLA. They're, they're all on their own river tracks. They can get moved around. They can reconfigure the network. And uh, so, so you have that telescope. You also have uh, the, Mur I'm going to say this wrong, the Murchison Radio Astronomy observatory which was founded out in 2009 here we actually have a facility that is in the utterly empty western coast of australia um and just looking all all across australia you see these networks of radio facilities that all get networked together to to be able to do some of the best radio astronomy in the world. And this is why some of the best radio astronomers in the world are Australians who have since then rearranged themselves to other <laughs> right. parts of the planet. Um, and then, I mean, I think it's important to also mention that NASA has one chunk of its deep space network. Now, we did a whole episode on the deep space network, but they are essentially gigantic right. radio telescopes that can transmit and receive, and they provide the the coverage when that part of the hemisphere is the only one that's able to see a spacecraft. And and so over and over, you see dish after dish uh, pulling together as part of the Australian Telescope National Facility, as well as you have Pathfinder projects for the Square Kilometer Array, which I know you're biting to talk about, <laughs> as well as these adi additional dishes like the Canterbury installation for the, the Deep Space Network. All right, let's talk about the Square Kilometer Array. So, so 
the Square Kilometer Array is one of those projects that I have to admit, when I was prepping for this show, I was like, oh, I didn't know that they aren't even really going to start building until 2020, because they've been talking about this project for so long. It, it is an 11 nation collaboration where the idea is to build a network of telescopes that their collecting area adds up to one square kilometer. And, and so just to sort of interrupt here for a second. So like we've talked about, for example, the, um, like the, the Event Horizon Telescope, right? Where you've got all of these telescopes around the world and they are acting as an interferometer. They are merging their signals together and they are acting like a telescope that with a baseline as big as the Earth. In other words, but but the baseline does not provide the resolution, does not provide, sorry, provide, right. does not provide the, the sensitivity. It's you need surface area, lots and lots and lots of surface area. And so if you add up all of the separate telescopes together, the the one in the South Pole and the one in Greenland and the one in, you know, you've only got a few uh, hundred square meters total. And this, this and is so I mean, here. It's ridiculous. And and originally I'd. There, there were a bunch of different places that proposed to get it. China was one of the ones that proposed as well because they have vast high deserts. Uh, and, and this is a project that started back in 1991. And I remember hearing dribs and drabs about it when I worked in radio astronomy at Haystack. And they were talking about actively building the LOFAR project, which is another big array. And then in... Uh, 2000 they started the official collaboration with the memorandums of understanding and there is the competition for site selection and we were supposed to hear early in 2012 exactly where the array was going to go and I have some friends that were on the selection committee and they're just like oh my god this is a story that no one can ever know and oh my god and there was head shaking and there was hints and the announcement didn't come out when it was supposed to it wasn't at the meeting it was supposed to be at and everyone was just like what is going on and and since then we've we've started to find out some of what was going on and it was politics it always comes down to politics and and the issue was south africa was one of the major competitors they they had built the meerkat telescope array it was functional it was doing good science they were investing vast resources in developing astronomy in south africa and they were building collaborations across southern africa multiple nations where they were looking to develop their continent by developing their science and and building the this infrastructure multinationally and and they had this great proposal but they were a new kid on the block they didn't have that 200 years that hundred year long record of building observatory after observatory after observatory and human beings are biased we like what's familiar uh, human beings are racist which sucks 
And Australia had put in a really damn good proposal, but not as good as South Africa. But Australia had that track record. Right. They know how to build radio yeah. telescopes and run them. They know how to build. And, and they had a pathfinder, too. Their proposal was not as good as South Africa's, though. And, and so was this, there was this quandary. And there was yelling and arguing. And the decision was made to divide the child. <laughs> yeah. And, they, they actually and cut the baby. They, they cut the baby in yeah. half. And, and the thing about the square kilometer array is it's meant to work across a variety of radio frequencies. And what they're now doing is they're building some of the telescopes for some of the frequencies, or rather all of the telescopes for some of the frequencies in Australia. And, and they're not spanning Australia and New Zealand, which was the original proposal. They're, it looks like now, while New Zealand is still a partner in the square kilometer array, when you go on your tour of Tolkien sites, there will not be telescopes to visit that are part of the square kilometer array. Um, it's going to be restricted to Australia. And the other half of the child is going to Southern Africa, which is another show. Yeah maybe forthcoming. Um, so so now we are looking that that Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory that I mentioned is, is where the Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder mission, or I guess radio array was built. Uh, noisy astronomer, Nicole Gallucci, a friend of our projects, uh, she actually worked on that with her dissertation, which is part of why I was like, this stuff should be more advanced by now. Because um, well, she was involved? But, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it just, it's been enough years. Right. They picked in 2012. So in May of 2012, they announced they, they were announcing, they were dividing the baby. And they started working on how are we going to build this? They started marking out the radio quiet zone. They started mapping out the locations. And, uh, as as they're working on it, um, they're they're hoping to start building in the coming couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Like we we are expecting the first phases of the square kilometer array to start coming online by the end of the twenty twenties. Yeah. So, but it, but but I just want to. Um, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to give like one really interesting thing, which is we've, you know, people always said like, oh, we've been broadcasting all of these signals into space. But of course, you know, and our aliens listening to us and the reality is, is that the aliens, you know, the, the signals over large volumes of space, they drop down to barely perceptible beyond any reasonable distance. Well, it turns out the square kilometer array when it is operational, would be able to detect Earth out to a um, distance of, I think, like 100 light years. Yeah. So and, it and could so the detect. kilometer array. Yeah. It, they're planning to use some of the time to listen yeah. for other civilizations. <laughs> and, and they're going to do, like, tests of general relativity that are more fine-grained than anything we've ever done. They're going to measure uh, hydrogen gas uh, out 
in billions of galaxies, we are going to have maps of the large-scale structure of the universe that make Sloan Digital Sky Survey look sad and small um, because radio astronomy just gives you this yeah. ability that you don't have anywhere else. So stay tuned. The uh, like the Large Hadron Collider, the the fusion experiment in Europe, the like these monster things, the James Webb Space Telescope. This is on the same class as those big international collaborations, and should you know provide a level of science, you know push our understanding of the universe out so much farther. I cannot wait for this thing to come online. The, the the way to think of this is as James Webb is to Hubble, yeah, the frequencies are different, wavelengths are different, but the size is the big thing. As as James Webb is to Hubble, square kilometer array is to Alma. Yeah. So if you're like, oh my God, Alma. Yeah. Well, just you just wait. you wait. All right. On that note, uh, we're gonna wrap things up. Do you have any names for us this week? I, I do. I have so many names, and I'm so glad I have so many names. I am going to read some more of our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much, all of you, for what you do that allow us to do this show. Um, so this week, I want to thank... Uh, oh, man, I have to scroll to the correct page. Hold on. Hold on. Um Tyrone Fong, Brian Kilby, Joe Wilkinson, Margot Robinson, Chad Colopy. Colopy? Chad, I'm sorry. Chad, we love you. Dustin Roof, Omar Del Riviero, J. Alex Anderson, Mark Stephen Rasnake, Jeremy Kerwin, Holly Meyer, William Lauer, WordOrigins.org, Gregory W. Joyner, Jordan Geldart, Brett Peterman, Brian Curry, and Arctic Fox, who has a super cute, super cute logo. Thank you, Arctic Fox. All right. Thanks, Pamela. We'll see you next week. See you next week. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light, Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at AstronomyCast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph.